I got to say, I'm excited. You know, we nerd out about a lot here on the show and you never know what you're going to get. Like, what are we nerding out on next? Well, today we're nerding out on bladesmithing. Yes, the idea of making swords and knives in the comfort of your own home. Let's rock it. Oh my gosh, welcome. Thank you for joining me today here. I really appreciate this. We are talking with Doug Erkala here today. He is, uh, wow, um, there's a lot of todays going on. I just love today. Today, welcome. (laughs) He and I chatted and he told me that he was into bladesmithing and making his own Viking swords and knives at home with his own forge, his own anvil, all that good stuff. And I thought, wait a minute, what? Are you serious? We got to chat, man. So I wanted to invite Doug onto the show to discuss this and tell us all about it because uh, this is something really cool to be able to nerd out on. So Doug, Doug, my friend, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I I love chatting with you, man. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, you know, yeah, we've connected on Red Hat and I didn't even know who you were. You know, we were going to talk about Splunk. That's where you work. And then all of a sudden I said, what are you nerding out on? You said bladesmithing. And I went, wait a minute. (laughs) Okay, we have to talk and you got to come on to my show and uh, have a little fun here. So that's what we're doing. We're going to be jumping into that. But uh, first of all, share something about yourself that most people don't already know. Well, we went over my tech, you said where I worked. So yeah. I think one of the things that'll blow most people away is that wasn't my original career. Oh. My original career was as a radio broadcaster, broadcasting of live sports events. I did commercial production. I hosted a uh, afternoon drive time for a classic rock station filled in for country music filled in for big band era uh, heck even broadcast a lot of uh, Sunday morning church services in in the middle of nowhere that is awesome I got I got my start as a part-timer oh. in a small 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 town in the middle of upper Michigan yeah uh, you know I think I, we had hold on I, I can count the number of stoplights one <laughs> two three four Five. There were five stoplights that I can remember. I, I got my start. I, I was actually a high schooler at the time, um, and they were just looking for somebody to run run the board for high school f- uh, football and hockey games. And so I'd come in after school, uh, sit there, listen for my cues, turn down the DJ, turn up the ad. That w- that was what I did. I think my first year. And then uh, after graduating high school, like, hey, can you do more? So I transitioned from doing that to broadcasting Red Wings games, football, and baseball games like the Tigers. Nice. So, um, and then after doing that for a few years, I started training people. And then I started doing voice com- voices for commercials and the occasional fill-in. Or uh, one summer was literally driving a death trap uh, around the area looking for people who had our radio station signature sticker oh, in the back yeah. window. And if I found you and I told you, Hey, I'm following a blue Toyota, um, <laughs> a blue Toyota with the last letter of the license plate was X, uh, pull over here at the, uh, at the, the, the gas station up here. I got a prize for you. If you did great, uh, I'd give you either a, a t-shirt CD tickets to an event or nice. some other prize. And uh, yeah, I almost died of carbon monoxide poisoning in that thing. That, oh, was, wow. that was not fun. Well, it was the early days of stalking, which is kind of cool. You know, you're just. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got paid for a summer to stalk people. That's all. Perfect. See, that's something most people don't know. <laughs> yes, crazy. I got paid to stalk people. I love it. I love it. We got to get into this bladesmithing because I got to tell you, when you told me this, so a little history here is I've always wanted a sword. Always. I mean, ever since, I, well, I don't even remember. But I grew up with the Highlander 
I want to say probably, well, I guess it would have been high school. So maybe not as young as I think, you know, but I wanted a lightsaber since I was a kid kind of thing. But, you know, the the whole sword thing kind of came about after watching the Highlander and kind of going, oh, this is really cool. And then, of course, you know, Braveheart and some of those other amazing things that came out. And you're like, dude, I just need a sword. I need a sword so bad. And everyone's like, for what? I'm like, for chopping heads off, of course. And of course, you don't know. No, no, no. Uh, I'm kidding. But really, who doesn't want to have a sword? And so I got excited. But when you said you were actually forging your own blades and you're looking into eventually Viking swords and knives, I just thought, okay, this, this is crazy. Like, you, do you have a forge in your backyard? I mean, is that, or, or your garage? I mean, is that seriously how, how it is right now? Yeah, yeah. I've got a, <laughs> so I've got cool. a forge. Okay. I've got a forge. So my, my garage is actually set up to where I've got my forge. I've got my anvil and I... I, I, I might've spent a, a pretty penny on a power hammer. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. It, it, it's fun. It's a little wild just watching this thing hit with several tons of force. Just go thump, 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 right in front oh, of you. Yeah. So instead of actually doing the hammering yourself, it's, it's, you're saying that's doing it for you. It does a portion of it. So okay. the nice thing is, is like when you're, when you're trying to get a blade to shape, you're working with typically like a, a starting piece of steel, something mm-hmm. like this. Mm-hmm. And it's just, half inch by six inches, but you've got to draw down one end really from that, that, that like two or three inch thick uh, width. You've got to get it down to like almost an inch. And that, I mean, this is steel. This doesn't, it doesn't move easily. So you can use the power hammer to do, to get that starting shape in. And then that's where you go. Okay. Now I need to transition over to doing all the hand hammering. So I do have a traditional hammer. I got, I got hammers and I got traditional anvil that I use as well. But you'll just use the power hammer to get the start of it, and then then you go in with the hand stuff. And I've got a lot of friends in this area that you know, some of them do everything by hand, and I totally that is that is skills, that mm-hmm. is effort. I'm an engineer. I I make my living finding ways of cheating every ounce of effort out of something out and being as lazy as possible. Yeah. That that is that is the definition of a good engineer, somebody who wants to do as little work as possible and get paid the most for it. So, you know, I'm going to okay, it's a lot easier for me to spend a few minutes on this one area to get it just started right and then I can take it over from there where where the abilities with my hand actually can make the difference rather than just manhandling it. Because let's face it, when you're hitting something with four or five tons of power, it's going to move it quick, but it's not going to be, it's not, there's no finesse there. It Mm -hmm. is pure, just thump. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So you're starting off with a piece of steel. And by the way, what, what kind of steel are you getting? How do you find it? What do you recommend in that scenario? So I, I do start uh, with, traditional uh, sta- high carbon steel i do not do stainless steel okay. um, i don't have the i don't have the the equipment to to properly treat stainless steel because you have to actually do a lot of extra work to get that hard and not too brittle so i'm i'm not there yet um i i have friends that work in stainless steel you know they're great i'm not that good um but i use high carbon steel typically i'll either bounce between 1084, which is a great beginner steel, or 1095, and that that grading is really about okay, how much carbon is in is in the blade. Mm-hmm. Um, the more carbon, the it's gonna it's gonna retain an edge a little bit better, but it's gonna could be a little more brittle, harder to to handle. Um, they're they're just kind of trade offs. So the, the two of those are very similar. Their only difference is I think maybe roughly ten or yeah, point one percent 
of carbon is about the only difference there. So they're really close to each other, but they make for a really easy heat treating. So once you're done actually forging the blade to the size you want, um, you actually have to go through and it's, it's built up all this stress in there from the hammering, from the reheating to the cooling, the reheating to cooling. Um, the, the, bra- the blade is pretty much full of stress mm-hmm. and you've got to, first off, you've got to take all that stress down and with, through a process called annealing, it kind of softens the blade again, gets it back to its traditional kind of hardness. And then you have to actually go in and uh, harden the blade. So you, you heat it up to uh, a temperature where it's above mag- magnetic. Uh, so if you ever touch a magnet to a hot, uh, hot uh, steel blade like this, it, the, the magnet will not touch. Mm-hmm. It, it is totally inert. Um, at that point, you dunk it. And with this grade of steel, you, you want to use oil and a good quality oil, not water. Oh, um, okay. But once you go into the oil, it's going to drop the heat really quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that hardens the blade. And now it's going to be in, in a lot of cases going to be very brittle. Like I've, I've, I've broken a few blades, taking them out. Like, Oh, I dropped it and shatter. Oh yeah. Not fun. Um, but it's now it's going to retain that edge that you put onto it. So you go into another tempering cycle to kind of bring that down, but you do it slowly. And so it retains its hardness. It's the, it takes away some of the extra brittleness and it's a, at that point, a workable, workable blade. That's incredible. So I'm curious now on the, the types of materials in general with the, with the steel, of course, you know, you've got, you've got, well, there's a lot of information out there, but I want to know kind of more the myth busting on this. You know, you hear that stainless steel in general is probably the, the weakest of the blades. At least that's what I've heard, you know, but then you've got your Damascus steel. And then of course with katanas, you know, they fold them a billion times, you know, what's the truth between what what really, what's the truth with that? I mean, getting a, a quality blade that's, that's hard enough to, you know, withstand a, a, if you actually do want a sword fight, it's not going to get chopped off or shatter, like you said. So, so all of them, if they're processed right, you can, you can fight with them. There's no issues there. Number one, you always want to make sure you're never doing blade on blade when, when you're fighting with a sword, because that will chip or even potentially shear off a blade. Okay. Um, so never, it's always flats, always flats. Okay. Um, but I have any one of those. Um, the thing is with Damascus steel, there's really no additional strength benefits to it. It's entirely visual. Um, and it, it's, it's okay. brilliant, pretty steel. Yeah. And the way you do that is you actually mix, because remember I was talking about 1084 and 1095? Yep. To get that visual, you're going to switch out. You're going to use, say, a layer of 1084. You might use a, a more nickel-based steel mm-hmm. uh, to go on top of that. And then you just do that layer and layer and layer. Um, and then once you actually forge all of that down, that's where you get that Damascus. Um, so you'll, okay. you'll getting, it's from the layering there and then you'll etch it in acid to reveal the layers because one of those is going to have a different carbon content, the other. So it'll, it'll resist the acid more than the other layer. And that's where you get that, that differentiation of the, of the colors. Um, okay. Japanese blades are done in a totally, like they, they do a lot of the same like folding that you would do in Damascus. Mm-hmm. But in their case, and, and I have a, a, a friend that he specializes in um, Japanese style blades and he does it. He actually makes his own steel to do this. Oh and wow! I, I have two friends that do that actually. That, and they, both of them specialize in Japanese steel yeah. um, and they both have very different ways of doing it. And yeah. it's always, it's always interesting to see because they'll do, 
they'll do a layer of this grade of of carbon on mm-hmm. the outside, and then they'll do a really high carbon um, on the on the blade side, and then a really soft low carbon on the spine. Okay. And then they'll sandwich that again with another, maybe even a piece of Damascus if they really want to. Okay. And that's Interesting. Like, that's three different layers there, all yeah. of different qualities because you're, you're really trying to find the best core. Like the, you're, you're, it's a lot of blade engineering and there are entire books yeah. about this. Yeah. So I mean, really there's, I mean, clearly there's a science to it, of course, but you're to, you're saying that in, in individual cases, there's a significant amount of art that goes into it. As far as, well, this is my preference and this is what I think looks better. But as far as strength goes, the science is pretty across the board. Is that what you're saying with, with the strength of it? For the commonalities, um, okay. yeah, there, there are going to be, like, if you are doing true fighting, you don't want a ton of carbon in it um, okay. because that, that's going to make it harder and more brittle. So you would tend to use a lower carbon uh, so that it, it has some some flex to a little bit more flex. But even then the biggest issue is not even so much your steel, your steel choice. Your biggest issue is going to be the process that you have to go through to get it hardened and that you don't screw that up. Because um, if you actually take a look within steel, while it's going through the forging process, as it heats up um, the, the actual grain, the, the, the structure within the crystalline structure within the steel is going to grow. Mm. And the more of that there is the, the, more brittle the the blade is so then you have to go through and you really have to make sure that you are as close to 100 percent correct on your process to make sure that you don't have that and that the grains are as small as possible yeah and that 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 right there is i'm still on the process of making sure i'm doing that 100 percent right every single time yeah um one of the reasons why i don't sell any of my blades because i don't know if i could trust them from not (laughs) shattering that easily sure um I've only been doing this for a few years, but you know some of the some of the people that that I've learned from they they've got their process down pat, and I would for the most part I would trust their blades going into fighting. Nice. So you're saying that you know you've been doing this for a few years. So I was going to ask, is it a, a simple process? But apparently not really. There's a lot to learn. You do hear about the master and apprentice sort of things, you know, of old. That well, I mean, so I have a friend of mine who um, his wife's Japanese. They go out there and he knows some master swordsmen you know, in Japan that actually create katanas and stuff. And that that's actually, I mean, I really want, I don't really care. I want a katana, but I just want a sword period. Knives are awesome. You know, just be cool. But either way though, um, they were, he was talking about, you know, how many years it can take to really become a master and you know, that these people are revered and then not to mention the blades they make. It's like unique one of a kind sort of thing. So I imagine it's not a very simple process or an easy process. Like this takes really years of, of diving into. To, to really get good at the whole process. Yeah. Okay. Um, it can take it can take years and and a lot of people i know they've been doing this for 10 15 years um wow. there's one freak that i don't know what is wrong with him but he <laughs> he started like, out right? there's a freak i love it <laughs> yeah no he, excellent smith um yeah. probably you know probably one of the, the one of the better smiths i know um but he he only started a, a few years before me and the guy, I, I would consider him very close to that master uh, wow. realm because he is making his own steel. He wow. is teaching. He yeah. All of his blades are just absolute beautiful quality. Um, and and I, it's just like, okay, I don't know 
your brain must be wired in a completely different way than most people, but he learned really quickly. Mm-hmm. He excelled and he worked his butt off at it too. So yeah. you know what? Uh, yeah, it, it, you can do it fairly quickly or not. I won't say quickly. You can, you can do it in a few years if you pretty much dedicate your life to it mm, and, yeah. and you, and you, and you study really hard. Yeah. Um, but then there's also, so I, I, I forge my blades. Um, there's another yeah. route to, if you want to make knives and other, other sharp pointy objects, uh, you can do what's called stock removal. A lot okay. of, a lot of people start there because it's literally just, you take that piece of bar that you, that you want to start with. And rather than forging it to shape, you literally just grind it with a grinder to the exact shape that you want. Um, now that there's all kinds of arguments about how that stacks up against forging. I see, I have never seen any real difference between the two when it comes to strength or usability. It's more that often the, the people who forge want to flex and show that they, that, Oh, you're not real bladesmiths. You're not actually smithing. Um, eh, yeah. Teach their own, but they're, you're still making knives. So yeah, totally. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's probably the quickest way to get into it because okay. you can grind it and then you can send it out. Like there are places you can send out to that will do all the heat treating and processing for you. Okay. But again, that's added cost. So, yeah. so then I'm, you're taking it customizing. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And you're right. You know, people dive into this kind of thing too. And you know, the purists are going to say, it doesn't matter what field you're in. Purists are going to say that kind of thing in general, you know, you're not a real yep. YouTuber, unless you fill in the blank, you know, kind of thing. It's just, yeah, whatever. So show us one of your blades real quick. I know you've got a, is it a knife that you've got right now or? I've, I've got one of my display cases next okay. to me, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's see him. I'm going to show you the first knife I ever made. I'm only showing it because I like you and <laughs> I normally wouldn't, hey, it, I would normally would not claim ownership of this sure, atrocity. It's the first attempt and that's the most important thing is every first attempt sucks with everyone in no matter what you do so oh yeah although i don't assume so, this sucks i'm assuming it's just you know okay yeah nice so what's what's it, going on at, at, at the at what is my top so this part up here is yeah. uh it i didn't i didn't finish it properly okay. so it, this is still some of the sanding marks like the the forge, the forge scale that was still left on it, and yeah. you can kind of see that it gets shinier as it goes down. That's where I where I sanded more and more. Okay. Um, I wouldn't claim this is very tough, uh, very sharp either. Okay. But um, the the worst part about this is this is a very offensive knife in many reasons for me, um, <laughs> partially because uh, you mentioned uh, my interest in in a uh, Viking and uh, Norse blades, mm-hmm. um, and that's what I was trying to create with this. Okay. Uh, the only problem was, is I didn't know my head, my, my, my butt from a hole in the ground. Um, <laughs> so I went in the totally wrong direction. I, I listened to the wrong sources. So this, this clip shape that you see here, not at all representative of what a true, uh, Nordic or Scandinavian sax or, or any of even the Anglo-Saxon finds would not have that. They'll have something similar, but this is okay. too abrupt and then the blade is too uniform from across. So, uh, number one, the shape is completely wrong. But even worse than that. Oh, yep. I see. <laughs> yeah. It, the, the handle. 100% straight, straight across the board. Yep. No, no. It, yeah. There's a bad kink on it. But, yeah. uh, no, this was, this was my very first attempt. And, yeah, it, it's hideous. But well, well, you know what I like about it, though, is that, again, it's showing your first attempt and all that. But it's also show, it's, it's more of a rustic kind of simple look, which I like. And it's kind of like, Hey, this is it. This is the first one. And then we see the progress. 
So you like the you like the rustic. This is yeah, yeah, this would be considered a, a a blacksmith's. This next one is, is considered a blacksmith's knife. Okay. Um, traditionally, a blacksmith's knife is going to be pretty much a hundred percent steel. You might wrap it like I did here with paracord, but yeah, for the most nice. part, it's just going to be one piece of steel. Um, this one, you know, this one actually works. Uh, my okay. my wife can attest to that. This was in our. Uh, <laughs> This, I used to keep this in our RV, and yeah. uh, unfortunately, she went in to grab something, and I totally forgot the knife was in there, and she cut her hand. So oh well, this, this, this one, this one's tasted I'm blood. Glad it works, but sorry that it's um, you know, <laughs> it's been christened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but that still looks so, good though. The paracord's a nice touch, by the way. And it makes it a, a little bit nicer in the hand than just the rough, the rough steel too. Yeah, that, that's exactly. Part, it, it used to exist without the paracord, but I'm like, you know what? Now let me let me wrap this up. It'll be a little bit nicer in the hand but this yeah. this one is actually probably this one is one of my favorites right now oh look at that wow how did you so, it looks like scales and then this side's a little bit different yeah oh that's cool yeah see it looks like snake skin on one side and scales well either way yep. so <laughs> different this, types of this will be familiar to some people if they uh, if they're familiar with horses so mm. this start this started its life as a farrier's rasp okay um are you familiar with those? I'm not personally, no. Okay, so a farrier's rasp is a farrier is the person who takes care of uh, horseshoes on and hooves on a horse. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that attach the horseshoe. They they grind the the uh, hoof back, etc. Yeah. Well, in order to do that, they have to have a really very sturdy file to grind down the hoof. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. So this was a this was a a dead file that a farrier had that that gave it to me, a friend of my uh, brother and sister in law. And I'm like, you know what? I've seen knives that have used those before. Let me let me do that. So this is this is probably one of my favorite ones so far. Now this, yeah. you notice the clip on this? Uh huh. This is more of what I should have been going for on that first one because this okay. is actually closer to what a, a traditional Scandinavian sax would have looked like. Okay. It's not perfect. It don't I'm not claiming 100 percent uh, accuracy yet. Uh, but this is more of the style and the shape that I'm going for uh, because that's closer to what that would be. And then there's a uh, deer antler bolster right here. Okay. And then the handle itself. Can you see the little uh, mm -hmm. eyes on it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was wondering all, what those were. Yeah. It's all bird's eye maple. Oh, that's cool. So everything for this knife actually came from my home t my hometown. Okay. Um, the, the farrier's rasp was from family there. The antler was from a deer, my brother-in-law shot. And then the bird's eye wood is actually leftovers that my dad had. Um, he was a woodworker and had collected a lot of this. Um, so I, I, he had saved up a bunch and he gave some to me. So this, all of this is part is part of, uh, the upper peninsula of Michigan. That is neat. You know, and I appreciate you, you're talking about your reusing stuff. So even though I know some of the purists would say, well, you don't make your own steel and so whatever, but think about it this way. You're actually recycling in a way you're taking something that's been used and it's probably going to get thrown away or just not used anymore. And you're taking that and you're actually repurposing it in the way you would want it. I think that's kind of cool. And I think there's a, there's an interesting, um, I guess a niche to that in a way that I, I think a lot of people probably would like too, because you're, you're repurposing materials and stuff. And then you're using, you know, like you said, wood that's actually local to where you're at, which is awesome too. There's a lot of cool exactly. things you can do with the wood and stuff. And then yeah. the nice thing with that is, is bird's eye is just as is, is gorgeous as it is. Oh, for um, sure. I, I, I love it. Um, the funny thing was, is um, the, the high school I, I used to go to, 
all of our uh, the gym flooring was bird's eye. Wow. Can you imagine how much a bird's eye gym floor, like basketball oh court, would cost? Yeah. Now, the problem is, is the school was built in the early 1900s when that oh, wood was yeah. seen as diseased and cheap. Interesting. And now it's prized. Now it is huh. prized. Exactly. That's fascinating. So, yeah. uh, but you, you bring up the, oh, I'm not, I, I'm not a purist. I don't, I don't make my own steel. I'm saying I, that from people's other, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> I've done it. I've done it twice mainly uh in classes but it, it's a long extensive process uh there's a local local viking combat uh experimental archaeology group here in new england called hurstwick mm -hmm. they did a uh they were trying to see if they could recreate the 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 viking or scandinavian process the icelandic process for creating steel um because it, it wasn't very heavily documented. There were little bits of things, and then they, they traveled to, to Iceland to, to do some more research. And then they brought some of that back, and they were they actually set up multiple weekends where, where they experimented with stuff. I, I luckily was invited to help out a couple of times and attended, and just mostly I was there to just help measure stuff and chuck in, uh, chuck in the coal. Um, there were more senior people actually doing the real experiment. But it was so much fun to actually get to go through this experimental archaeology process and see how how this group was thinking they actually took the, the learning they took the, that they got from all this trial and uh, error here in massachusetts they had a uh, steel and iron making festival in iceland that year where they went and they for the first time in almost a thousand years created iron from local resources wow. in iceland wow through That's what cool. they can through what they can actually tell was the the same process that they would have used there with stacking up sod around the the uh, smelting chamber yeah, and yeah. doing it doing it that way wow that's neat you know i i love hearing all these stories about this kind of stuff just cuz it's so new to me you know and i've 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 been curious about it so what's your ideal like what are you what are you shooting for what kind of a blade would you like to make or even a couple of blades you know what, what what's your goal so for me, I'm not I'm not a huge like um, uh, British longsword or any of the the big fir, uh, big blades that you see. Definitely not yeah. definitely not a claymore or a Zweihander. Yeah. Um, for me, it's the the saxes um, and the and the Nordic blades, whether they be um, the smaller saxes like these, or even up to a long sax, long sax, uh, which would basically be the same. Same type of shape here, but mm -hmm. instead of being only this long, it'd be maybe a, a foot or two. Okay. Um, but then they also have the the traditional um, Danish Norse style um, three lobe, three or five lobed uh, double sided blade, which um, you, know, you might you'll you'll see replications of that. That's where I'm headed. Um, not there yet, but I'm getting good sure. with the sack shape first. And then once I, once I feel comfortable with that and have the ability, cause right now my, my ability to quench and cool a blade is only, I think I can only fit about two feet right now. I need a, a bigger heat treating and uh, oh, okay. process there. Cause I, I'm kind of hemmed in on my ability right now to do sure. that. That's cool. I, one last question I have on this uh, is, is like, what's the cost to get involved. I mean, on average for, forget the actual automatic camera thing you were talking about, but just even just to do a forge 
and the anvil and, you know, doing it manually, what, what's an estimate? <laughs> I'm kind of curious. It, it's pricey. Okay. Um, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I'm, and I'm not going to say exact numbers cause I don't want my wife to shoot me. Um, but <laughs> it, I mean, you can hey, get you into know. it fairly, you can get into it semi cheaply. I think the anvil I got, I think I paid maybe 120 bucks for it on, okay. um, on eBay. Okay. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a tiny one. It, it's the sure. smallest one you can pretty much get hammers. You can get pretty much cheaply at any Harbor freight. The big issue there is you've got to reshape the, the, the hammer heads a little bit because they're too sharp. Okay. Um, the biggest thing is going to be the forge and you can find fairly cheap forges on, on Amazon even nowadays. Um, or interesting heck worst case scenario. If you can dig a trench, get some sort of airflow going through it, you can pile that trench with coal as long as it's good, high quality coal, not like the not charcoal that you would get for your, your grill. You've got to get like good good coal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can you can do it in a trench. I mean, that's how that's how it started. Sure. Okay. So, but uh, the way I would actually recommend it, though, there are maker spaces around the country that have some of this equipment already. Okay. I lucked out when I first started, there's a makerspace near me called the workshop in Worcester, Massachusetts. And they, they had a, they would do classes. And once, you know, once you passed enough of those classes, you could become a member. It didn't, I think I, I think I took two classes there and then I became a member, but I could pay a monthly subscription fee. And I would have access to the building during certain hours. They would have all the equipment. I just have to go and use it. Hmm. So it's kind of like a, uh, like a shared space cooperative yep. kind of thing. You just pay for the membership, go use it and have some fun. That's yeah, awesome. Exactly. So and they, had, they had all kinds of, yeah, they had all kinds of other stuff, but I was really yeah. focused on the forge area, but they had an area for 3d printing. They had one oh, wow. for CNC work. Um, they didn't have anything for casting, but I think they were, go- they were working on that eventually. But sure. there are, make- there are maker spaces around the country. Um, there's a big one um, called the Crucible uh, in mm. Oakland, California. Okay. That's a big one. Um, yeah. they've, got a, they've got a lot of really excellent smiths working out of there as well. But check your local maker spaces. Some, yeah. some of them will have it. It's so interesting to me because I, I probably would never do something like this myself just because of the time you're talking about. I don't have the space for it either. Um, but actually kind of like that, that co-op space idea, you know, but I'll tell you though, that one of the things that it's just so fascinating because I love discovering these things. You never know what your next hobby is going to be, you know? And I think that's such a cool thing. Um, I know, man, I tell you, I I would love a katana. I would love a, a Klingon batleth, which I think would just be so cool. Uh, even one of those knives, you know, the actual, where they go, you know, open, those would be so cool. I mean, I, so, I don't know why I can't think I, of the name of it, but you know me, I'm a Star Trek nerd, but I just can't think of the name of it. I, I would recommend, um, if, if you're just interested in, in kind of the fantasy, popular sci-fi fantasy blades, um, there's a YouTube series called Man at Arms. Okay. Uh, it, 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 it is an excellent series. They actually have made a Batleth. They've made, uh, I think one of my favorites of theirs was they actually created a lightsaber hilt and married it with a katana. Wow. So they they are excellent smiths and awesome guys, uh, and it I mean it's a great YouTube channel. I, I highly recommend it. What is the origin story of this? And then what I, I was going to say what compelled you? That's probably the right word, but I was going to say what possessed you even <laughs> to go out and buy a forge? No, what compelled? That's the better way to put it. I get possessed so, on all kinds of passions, so I, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, no, 
definitely a bit possessed. I'm sure most people wouldn't question that. Oh, but, yeah, but cool. You know, where this, I guess, Star Wars. Star Wars is what started it all. Really? Um, okay, yeah, hold on. What because, about Star Wars, though? Like, where? which? Give me the scene. So I'm a huge Star Wars fan. Nice. Uh, I grew up watching it. It was one of my favorite movies. Um, and my grandfather actually took me to see Re- Re- uh, Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember that, but I grew up my entire childhood loving Star Wars. And part of that was the sword fights. You know, it was yeah. lightsaber on lightsaber action. And then, you know, as you grow up, you go from being a kid to being, you know, learning about history in school and you, you learn about the Middle Ages and, and actual sword fights there and where, where, the, where the Star Wars stuff was inspired by. And all that, you're like, okay, this is all really cool, but I, I feel like I'm missing out. I want to do this. This sounds so much fun. Yeah. And then you get into, I got into college and there was a group called the Society for Creative Anachronism. And it's a historical recreation group, people who basically all like, oh, you know what? What if we just magically were able to go back to living in the Middle Ages? Um, what would life be like? And they try and recreate it and have fun with it. So there, there'll be some people that are very focused on remaking the clothing from it. And they, they can get very meticulous on it. But then there was the other side of people, and I was one of those, they're like, okay, you know what? I don't care about the food. I don't care about the clothing. I want to fight. Yeah. So there, we had a small team of what we called sword and board fighters. It was people who would have a rattan uh, sword that they had made and covered in duct tape and foam, and they would get semi-legitimate armor. And it was mostly plastic, but it looked it would always be shaped in the proper timeline for whatever your character was because this was kind of like, I don't know, LARP for historians. Mm-hmm. And I did that through college, and it really was a lot of fun. And then as I, as I got a little bit older and I'm like, you know what? I could get back into that. That'd be a lot of fun, but I don't know. I don't really want to have all that history pretext. Like that was never the fun part for me. It was just the fighting. And I learned about a group. Uh, I learned about a, a program called HEMA historical European martial arts through of all places, a nerd fitness camp. Oh, really? Um, as in Steve yeah. cams, nerd fitness. Yep, oh, that's exactly. awesome. Yeah. Steve's awesome. That's yeah, cool. So, I was there. I was there one year. Uh, I think it was the the last year he had camp, and one of the instructors there. He did a bunch of stuff on on sword work, and I, I really got into it. And when I when I went home, I found the, our local group that did it. So I, I joined up with them for a while, and and then you know, I was I was doing fighting somewhat occasionally, um, but it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. And then again, I got older, got distracted by work, and I'm like, you know what? I can get back into this now that things are settling down. Um, eh, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I'm not necessarily where I want to be physically, but I can still be, I can tangentially be related. So instead of fighting with swords, you know what? Let's make them. Yeah. So it, it kind of goes from the growing up and, and loving, loving sword fighting, then doing it for a little while and then going, okay, you know what? Maybe I can't get out there and waddle my wide behind in armor as much as I want to. So I'll, I'll focus on the making side of it. You could make your own lightsaber. Just one though, just for you. Uh, I've already, <laughs> I've already got a couple. Oh, did you wait? Did you make them or did you buy them? No, these ones I bought. Okay. Um, but the, the fun thing is, is I, I opted for the uh, impact resistant blade. So yes, they the are, they, they are totally stunt usable. Yeah. Um, my wife and I have on occasion, <laughs> <laughs> come close to decapitating each other with plastic swords. That's awesome. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, no, it's fun. Those are hanging upstairs. Uh, they're right in my entryway. I actually have, as you walk in the door, there's two of them right in front yeah. of you. And uh, yeah, one is uh, one is blue, one is green. Nice. The uh, the green one is a little fitzy on the electronics. Like there's a, a, wa- sure. a weakness in one of the wires. So I'm actually looking at replacing that and doing red instead because I don't know. I've, I always felt a stronger compassion for the, uh, <laughs> the the dark side. You know, the Jedi's are all a bunch of murderers anyway. One of the things I love talking about here is unleashing the superhero, and you know, it's a it's a thing that many of us, I think we do, whether we know it or not. And then a lot of us don't, which is too bad, but we need to strive for it. It's, you know, it's, we all have that superhero in it, within us. We've all got our superpowers, whatever those may be. So how do we, you know, look beyond our selfishness essentially and unleash that to the world to benefit the world around us. And, and I'm just curious how you do this because, you know, like I said, we all do it in some way or another and it doesn't have to be big. It, it kind of comes down to my approach of, to the way of thinking. Um, Doing things the way you've always done them gets you where you are right now. Yeah. And that could be good, bad, and different. But to really kind of take yourself in new directions or solve the problem of where you're at right now, it takes doing something different. It takes thinking outside of the box and outside of what you would normally do. And and that's kind of my, I guess that would be my superpower, Um is to think outside of the box, take what you know and look at it from different angles and always try and be open to new information. And, you know, a lot of superheroes do that. Um, you know, how, how was Tony Stark created? You know, how was Iron Man created by Tony Stark? He yeah. had to think outside the box. He had something catastrophic happen to him that really made him question. So he started looking outside of that and seeing, okay, well, what does this mean? How did I get here? And, and thinking outside the box and, that led him to go, oh, crap, I need to change what I'm doing. Now, he did it in a, you know, on a global scale and on a scale that nobody else could ever potentially do. And, of course, he's a fictional character. But, you know, it's still inspirational to go, okay, you know what? Don't always take things at face value. Actually look at them from multiple angles and maybe you'll find your solution. And that's that's come into play both personal life, um, you know, Hey, I wasn't, I wasn't having fun with hobby X. Okay, great. Let me, let me go try something new that might not be normal. Like, I don't know, making blades. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also comes into play with work and you know, we've, I've working in it, I've had a lot of areas where you've had to respond to incidents like, Oh, websites down or something's having problems and you're just stuck at what the answer is. And taking that step back, not rushing to try and find the solution right now, but trying to go, okay, take stock of where you're at, what your current process is, what you're thinking and make sure that everything lines up. And if they don't look for new solutions outside of what you normally would do by taking, taking opportunities to educate or or share ideas and share what you know, you never know what that sharing will, will create. I mean, take a look at Mythbusters. They have done, they did a whole series on what happens if your car goes in the water. Yeah. Just as a, just as a, a busting different myths. And those learnings have actually been used by people who have come into situations where they've found a, a car in the water, that they've actually used that to save the lives of the people in the car, and that they may not have actually known what to do if it hadn't been for the Mythbusters talking about it and just sharing their information. So, yeah. you know, and that kind of goes to the same thing of thinking outside of the box. Don't just hold all of your information in your box, share it, talk about it. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Um, Many years ago, I actually had two people come to me and I, I, you know, it's, it's amazing when you refresh yourself about this kind of like, oh yeah, this happened, you know, 
just being a friend to somebody, you know, caring about them, believing in them, you know, giving them an alternative, showing them that, Hey, they have value, you know, whatever that may be. And you're not even like, I wasn't trying to do it. I just, Hey, they were my friend. I liked them. You know, I I cared about them and I, I showed them where they had value just because they were my friend. Two of them, uh, one of them came to me and actually said, you know, if it hadn't been for you, I would be in a horrible place right now. And I was kind of like, wait, what, you know? And, and so she was describing kind of where the path she was going down. And then, you know, I actually was working with her uh, back in college and stuff like that. And so she mentioned something and it was just like, you know, she said, if it hadn't literally been for you in my life, I would be here. And I was just like, wow. Another friend of mine said, you know, he was really planning on suicide and it hadn't been for me basically asking him to do something because we were friends and then valuing him and believing in him and trusting him and all that. Um, he was going to go commit suicide like that week. And so it was just, and you know, we're still friends today and hanging out. And so it's just, it's little things like that. You just, but you don't know that you're doing that. You're just valuing somebody. You're thinking beyond yourself. You're, you're showing them that they have value. You know, you don't have to force that just anyway, it's very interesting. Um, and I know there's probably plenty of other scenarios like that in life that we probably have no idea about. And, you know, maybe we'll hear about them and maybe we won't, but you never know what kind of a, an impact we're going to have on somebody, you know, smiling at some random stranger that goes by and saying hi and, you know, wishing them a nice day or something like that. You know, they might be on the way right now to do something terrible and they go kind of stop and go, maybe I won't, you know, who knows? Well, I appreciate it. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're trying to get out there and, and do your thing and finding solutions and helping people. And I know you help people through your work at Splunk, which is amazing. And, uh, I mean, honestly, you're, you're here and you're just, you're, you're, you're blessing the rest of us. So I appreciate it, man. I appreciate your time. And Doug, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Oh my goodness. That was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining me today here. Hey, here's what I would love for you to do. Please subscribe. If you've not already subscribed to the podcast and the YouTube channel, please do both. There's all kinds of ways to do that. Just go subscribe, click that bell for notifications on the YouTube channel and make sure to leave a comment. I want to hear from you by the way, because Hey, what did you think of this? Are you going to do bladesmithing yourself? Have you ever done it before? What did you think of Doug's knives? I mean, it was, I thought that was pretty cool just seeing what he's doing and stuff like that. I would really love to hear from you. Please let us know. And uh, we've got so much more coming on the show. Of course, we'd like to nerd out on anything. And so, yes, we nerd out on things, people, products, all kinds of things. And of course, we've got our episodes where, you know, truly the Real Brian Show podcast episodes where we literally, we just nerd out for 45 minutes. Anything goes. We hit record. We see what happens. So thank you for joining me here today. Have a wonderful rest of your day.